And today we're talking about David, this young uh, boy who goes from being a shepherd to being the king of Israel. All right. Let's pray. I want to pray for us as we begin. Father, as we come to your word this morning again, we're looking at some very familiar stories about David, about his life and about his reign and what you did. David was known as a man after your heart. Father, boy, we'd love that to be said of us too, that we are a people after your heart who love what you love and who desire what you desire. And so, Father, would you build those qualities in us too and use this message today to encourage us in our relationship with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. According to legend, there was a custom on the Hawaiian Islands concerning marriage that when a young man wanted to marry a young woman, he would need to go to the father and he would have to pay for the right to marry this man's daughter by offering him a certain number of cows. Now, this is not a joke. I'm not making a joke here, a comparison, but just talking about a custom. And what they would do is that, you know, generally an average wife would fetch maybe two cows or maybe three cows, you know, if she was especially attractive. On occasion, if there was a special catch, she might be worth four cows. And it was rumored once that there was even a woman who received five cows for the right for marriage. Well, there was an islander named Sam Carew who had two daughters, and he faced kind of a dilemma. And no one on the island really considered his oldest daughter to be worth three cows. He was kind of hoping he might get two cows, and he would even accept one cow if the man was good and would love his daughter. But everyone agreed that his younger daughter was a three-cow kind of girl. Well, then one day, this wealthy landowner, a man named Johnny Lingo, came. And he came to pay Sam a visit, and of course everyone thought he would be more interested maybe in the younger daughter. But Johnny came asking for the hand of Sam's oldest daughter. Well, Sam was really amazed by that and really started to think, well, maybe I will get those three cows after all. Or he let his imagination go and he thought, maybe I'll even get four cows for my daughter. Well, you can imagine his shock when Johnny brought not two cows or three cows or four cows, but ten cows as an offer for this man's daughter. Well, of course, Sam said, yes, they could be married. And the day came, they were married, they went on their honeymoon, and they came back and they lived together. And after about a year of marriage, the people on that island noticed something very different about Sam's oldest daughter. She had changed. She seemed more beautiful. She seemed more confident. She seemed like she had just kind of blossomed in her relationship with this man who loved her. You see, the value that he placed on her inner beauty, her true beauty, caused her to see her own worth. And when he paid ten cows for her, the moment he did that, she became a ten-cow wife. Now, I share that story because sometimes we need someone who believes in us to bring out the best in us. There are times when that may be a coach or a teacher who believed in you as a student and who brought out the best in you and your studies or maybe your abilities as an athlete. 
I share stories like this even when I counsel uh, couples who want to get married. And I say, you know, it's an amazing thing what happens when somebody loves us unconditionally like Christ loves us. If a young man will love his bride in that way and love her and honor her and treat her with respect and dignity, you can watch that young woman begin to blossom before your eyes too. And when a man feels like his wife loves him and respects him and believes the best about him and encourages him, you can watch that young man grow in his skills and abilities and begin to shine as well. Sometimes we need someone who believes in us to bring out the best in us. And we're going to see that today when we look at the story of this shepherd boy named David who becomes the king of Israel. And it is a reminder again, the main point of this chapter is that God can use anyone whose heart is fully devoted to him. And he can bring out the best in us as well. All right, let's take a look at 1 Samuel 16. I'd like to read for us the opening part of this chapter. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. And Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him, and they asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. And Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? Well, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in, and he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went down to Ramah. So David is anointed as king by Samuel. Now what was it that God saw in David? God saw potential in David when others did not. And we see that in the passage that we read and the stories we're going to look at going forward. Uh, Jesse, David's father, didn't see the potential in his son. 
Uh, he didn't even invite him to meet with Samuel when Samuel came to this feast and was going to anoint the next king of Israel. And when Samuel asked him, is this all your sons? I mean, do you have any others? You know, Jesse said, well, I do. They're still the youngest. And the word that he used there for youngest in Hebrew can actually be translated as runt, like the runt of the litter. I mean, that's how David's father saw him. Well, he's just the youngest. You know, he's kind of a scrawny little kid maybe, or he's still out there. You know, he's taking care of the sheep. And he did not see in him the potential to be king. He looked at his other sons as the ones who might fill that bill. David's brothers didn't see his potential either. Later in chapter 17, Jesse is going to send David into the battle to check on his brothers to see how the war is going with the Philistines. And when he gets there, Eliab sees David asking questions, talking to the men, And Eliab accused David of being conceited and lazy. We know how conceited you are, David, how you're talking all the time. We know your your dreams again, perhaps. And he's wondering, who'd you leave the sheep with that you're supposed to be taking care of, and why are you here? Eliab didn't see the potential in his brother either. Saul didn't see his potential. In chapter 16, In the second half of the chapter, David will be summoned to play an instrument and sing for Saul. David was very gifted musically. And when he sang, it felt uh, calming to Saul. And Saul liked him. And so he put him into his service as an armor bearer. But he certainly didn't see him as the next king of Israel. And even Samuel was mistaken. When Samuel looked at Eliab, the oldest, he thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And God said, no, he's not the one. God said, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now let me say this also on the other side. Being handsome or attractive doesn't disqualify someone from service either. Shoot, got by on that one. No, (laughs) just kidding. David was a handsome youth, and that is said here in the passage. When David came in, he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. We also read in an earlier chapter that Sarah, Abraham's wife, was a beautiful woman. But it wasn't their outward beauty or being handsome that qualified them or made them useful to God. It was their heart that made them useful in God's service. Again, God's not looking at externals, whether someone is handsome or not quite as handsome in the world's eyes or beautiful or not quite as beautiful according to the world's standards. doesn't mean a thing to the Lord. What God cares about most of all is our heart. How is our heart with him? So what was it that God saw in David? When I come to a passage like this and I hear that God saw David as a man after his own heart, I ask the question in my mind, okay, what was it? What can I find in Scripture that was maybe an indication of what God saw in David? And I see a few things. God saw David as someone who was faithful in the work that he had been given. He was being responsible, tending his father's sheep. 
His dad had put them out in charge of them, and that's where he stayed. That was his calling. You might think of David at this point in his life. He was just a teenager. He's probably like a freshman in high school or maybe a sophomore in high school. So if you think of freshmen and sophomores that you know and you think of them as being the next president of the United States kind of thing, that's what was going on here. And David, what's he doing? He's a teenager working at a low-paid job. He was a shepherd watching his father's sheep. But he was faithful in his work. And I think of what Jesus said to us when he talked about in his parables the faithful servant who was in charge of a few things but because of his faithfulness would be given greater responsibility. Those little things that we do in the world's eyes are not little to God. You know, the tasks that we are given, whether it's the responsibilities that your parents give you at home around the house, or whether it's that first job that you get and it's not your desired job that you'd like to do in the future, but it is a job and you're earning some money, When we do that well, that's a testimony to the Lord. And God honors that. Those little jobs, those acts of faithfulness, God sees and he gives us greater responsibility as we follow him. I think of Josh McDowell, who many of you know is a great apologist, author, and speaker. When Josh went on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, one of his first jobs was... uh, He was working at Arrowhead Springs in California. They were having a large conference with people coming in from all over the world. And Bill Bright said to him, Josh, you know, we need somebody to take care of the restrooms and make sure they're clean, okay? And so here he is. He's cleaning toilets on his first job, and he's thinking in his mind, you know, I shouldn't be doing this. I I ought to be speaking. I, I should be talking, using my gifts, and doing these other things. No, this is what we need you to do right now. And Josh would look back on those acts of service many years later and say that was one of the greatest lessons he ever learned, was to humble himself and to do whatever it was that God was asking him to do. God looks for faithful people. Secondly, God saw David's courage. May I think of David who's out there tending the sheep. In chapter 17, verses 34 and 35, he will say to Saul, He said, your servant's been keeping his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. Wow. Here's David, a teenager. He's out there watching the sheep. Okay, and when they are attacked by a lion or a bear, he doesn't say, well, whatever, it's not my problem. Or he doesn't say, you know, hey, I'm not getting paid enough for this. I mean, I'm getting paid to watch sheep. I'm not getting paid to fight bears and lions. You know, he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, my responsibility is to guard the sheep. And he defended the flock at the risk of his own life, and he rescued them from both lions and bears. David also used his time well. And I say this by implication. In that David as a shepherd also had lots of free time when he was watching the flock. And he obviously used it well. He played an instrument and he wrote songs that we still read and sing. You've heard of the Psalms, right? 
And you think of the Psalms and how David, when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, wrote these words of Scripture that have ministered to us, all of us, and to God's people for centuries. Not only that, he worked at his marksmanship. He was pretty accurate with a sling, a skill that would come in handy in the next chapter. But most of all, David had a big view of God. David believed in God and his might and his power. And we see that in chapter 17. In chapter 17, it's a story when the Philistines and the Israelites were at war. And one of the things that happened in those days is, you know, these uh, nations would bring up their armies and they would line up opposite each other. Here they are, opposite each other in the Valley of Elah, which is southwest of Jerusalem going toward the coast. The Philistines held the coast, the Israelites held the highlands and the, the hill country, and they're there opposite of each other. And they would send out a champion who would represent the army. Well, the Philistines had a ringer. They had this really big guy, you know, named Goliath, over nine feet tall. They describe him and the armor that he had. And this guy was strong and powerful, and he's out for battle, and he's got an attitude. You know, nobody's ever defeated this champion. And what they would do is they'd say, you know, send out your best man, we'll have them fight, and whoever wins, you know, uh, if our guy wins, then you become our servants. If your guy wins, we become your servants. Come on, let's do this. And so in chapter 17, beginning of verse 8, here's what happened. Goliath would come out. He'd shout to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you'll become our subjects and serve us. And then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. So here's this, this guy coming out, taunting the armies of Israel. When they hear him, they're afraid of him. I mean, they don't have anybody who's willing to stand up to this giant of a man. Except there's this teenager, David, who has come to check on his brothers and the army and how they're doing, and he just happens to come at the time when Goliath is going out and making his boast. And David had this big view of God. And when he heard Goliath speak, he said in verse 26, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? In David's mind, this wasn't a battle between David and Goliath. This was God versus Goliath. This was God's reputation that was at stake, and it would be God who would deliver Goliath into their hands. So David volunteers and says, I'll go and face him. He's brought before Saul and kind of asks, you know, Saul, what do you think? Do we send David out? Well, I got nobody else here. David, you know, why don't you try on my armor, you know, and he puts on this armor and it's too big for him and clunky and awkward. And David says, I can't go in these. And so David goes out with a sling and a stone with a staff and he's going out to meet Goliath. And Goliath sees him coming. <clears throat> and in verse 43, he mocks David. 
And he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Now on the slide we have up there, this is just the background that goes with the story. They have a slingshot kind of like what we would think of, you know, a stick with a V and, you know, you pull that thing back and let it go. That's probably not the kind of slingshot that David was using. Instead, the slingshot that they used was more like a long leather strap with a pouch in it. And archaeologists have found the kind of rounded stones that they would use. A little bit bigger than a ping pong ball, a little smaller than a tennis ball or baseball but around that size you know and they'd put that thing in the sling and they could swing it around their head and let it go but more often they took that thing and they swung it underhand kind of like you're pitching a softball and they would swing that thing underhand and it was said they could throw those stones as far as 400 yards and they were as accurate as archers and David had practiced this skill And he went out to face with Goliath with a sling and a stone. And you know the story. One stone from David landed right between the eyes, laid the big guy out. And there he is, laying on the ground, and David comes up and he takes Goliath's own sword and he cuts off his head. And Israel won the victory. Why? Because David had a big God. David had a great view of God. There was a man who was a seminary professor named Robert Dick Wilson. He was highly respected in his time. He was an amazing kind of man who knew over 45 languages, studied Hebrew, Greek, all of the ancient Near Eastern languages that were related to that, Akkadian and Ugaritic and Samaritan and all of those different languages that were there. And he... um, He had divided his life up into kind of three 15-year periods. If the Lord would let him live that long, he would take 15 years to study, 15 years to teach, and 15 years to write and put down everything that he had learned. And that was his goal, and God granted that in his life. And his seminary students at times would invite him to come and listen to them preach. And he said, I'll come and I'll hear you once. I'll come and I'll listen once, and then I'll tell you what I think. And what was he listening for when he came to hear his students? He was listening for their view of God. And Robert Dick Wilson knew that when he heard them preach, if they preached and they had a big God, they would do well in ministry. If they had a small God, it wouldn't go so well for them. How big is your God? Can he move mountains? Can he handle the challenges that you are facing in your life? Can he do the impossible? Is he the God that David knew and who still lives and works today? When I think about a big God, I think of Isaiah chapter 40. I think of what Isaiah wrote about our God, and I want to read for you. It's a little bit longer passage, but I think it is worth it. Listen to this. Isaiah said, Do you not know, and have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning, and have you not understood since the earth was founded, that he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers? He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, and spreads them out like a tent to live in. 
He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, and no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord, or my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth, and he will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Would you read these last three verses with me in unison? That he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Is that our God? Yes, it is. He's the God who we worship and serve, who can do the impossible, who can meet our needs and give us the strength that we need for each day. What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Well, the best answer that I can find it's actually found in Scripture in Acts 13.22. When Paul was speaking and he was going through the history of Israel, he talked about David. And it was said of David by God that I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything I want him to do. Why was David a man after God's own heart? Because David had made God's purposes his purposes. David had said, God, I want to do your will more than anything. That what you desire is what I desire. What your goals are are my goals. And that's the way he lived his life. David wasn't perfect. We're going to see that in the next chapter. David sinned in his life. He would confess it and be right with God. But David was faithful and teachable and obedient. His highest desire was to glorify God. Well, what would happen next in David's life? David will go into boot camp to be trained as king. And he's going to go through this period in his life where God's going to use experiences to mold and shape him. You see, there's a big difference between being anointed by God as king and being crowned as king by the people. In fact, there would be a 14-year gap in that period of time. And what does David do? I mean, here you've had Samuel anoint you and say that you're going to be the next king of Israel. Do you kind of walk around, you know, with your head held up and think, okay, I'm waiting. When's this going to happen? No, David did whatever he was assigned to do. Again, that quality of faithfulness showed up. The Lord was with David, and Saul gave him a high rank in his army. But David was so successful in fighting the Philistines that the people started singing that Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And of course, Saul the king did not like that. Saul was jealous of David because all Israel and all Judah loved him and Saul actually tried to kill David. 
The result was that David would be forced to flee for his life. He would live as a fugitive depending upon God for guidance and protection. There are times when he even went into Philistine territory just to get away from Saul. At other times he was in the wilderness where he would hide out in the caves. On one occasion, we saw this in the DVD, David was hiding in a cave in En Gedi. His men were with him. He's in the back of this deep cave. En Gedi is a beautiful spot. I've been there. Uh, it's in the wilderness toward the Dead Sea. It's kind of a rugged area where there are springs and streams and an oasis. But it is also has areas that are barren and mountainous with lots of caves. And so David went into one of them to hide. And Saul, who's looking for him, happened to go into the same cave, not knowing anyone was there. He went in, the scripture said, to relieve himself, to rest. And he's there and David sneaks up beside him. David's men are thinking, David, God's given him into your hand. Kill him. I mean, God's done this. He's put him right there. Why don't you do it? But David would not touch the Lord's anointed. David would wait on God's timing. Instead, what David did is he cut off part of Saul's robe. And when Saul went out and started to cross the valley again, David came out of the cave and shouted to him and proclaimed his innocence. Saul, check your garment. Here's part of it. I had the opportunity. I could have killed you, but I did not. I am innocent. And Saul replied to David, You are more righteous than I, and I know that you will surely be king. Well, 14 years would pass, and after 14 years of training, developing a fighting army with him, David would be crowned the king. And during this time in David's life, there was one man who believed in David and who became his closest friend. His name was Jonathan, the son of Saul. And just I want to go back and I want to read just a brief clip. This is from earlier in David's life when Saul and David uh, were still not quite at odds and David could spend time with Jonathan. In chapter 18, here's what it said. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. I want to call attention to it because Jonathan was the prince of Israel at that time. He's next in line to be king. His robe is a royal robe. And to take that off and to give it to someone else is like giving away your position, your, your power, your place. And Jonathan was willing to do that. That is amazing. I mean, Jonathan wasn't a wimp either. Jonathan was a warrior in his own right who had led Israel into battle on other occasions. Jonathan was a man of character, though, who saw God's hand on David, and he put God's will above his own personal desires. When I think of Jonathan, I think of John the Baptist, who said of Jesus that he must increase and I must decrease. Jonathan saw David as the next king of Israel, 
And he willingly laid aside his robe and gave it to him. Jonathan was a great friend, and David loved him. Thirdly, David's life points to the one who will come as the Messiah. There are a number of parallels between David's life and Jesus, and I want to point out some of them as we go through this last section. After David became king and he was living in his own palace, he wanted to build a house for the Lord, a temple. He said to God, Why should I be living in a fine palace when the, house, when the ark of the Lord is still in a tent? And so he wanted to build this temple to the Lord, but God said to him, No, David, you would not be the one who will build it, but your son will build it. So David made preparations. Solomon's the one who's going to construct the temple. And instead, God said to something very amazing. God said to David, I will build a house for you. And house here is kind of a pun. It means a dynasty. David, I'm going to build a house for you that's going to last forever. Your kingdom will never end. You will have someone who will sit on your throne who will reign forever. And David was so overwhelmed. I mean, David got what God was saying. In 2 Samuel 7, he is just absolutely overwhelmed by this statement from the Lord. And he says, who am I? And and who's my family, God, that you would promise such a thing? Is this your usual way of dealing with man? Is this your charter for mankind? No, it's not the normal way that God would deal with people. God in His grace had chosen David And from his line would come someone who would reign forever. And it was all of grace. A thousand years would pass and David would have a son who came from his family's line whose kingdom would never end. And his name is Jesus. How are David and Jesus alike? Well, here are a number of parallels. Both David and Jesus came from the same city and the same tribe. David was, and Jesus were both born in Bethlehem, and they both were from the tribe of Judah. Both men would stand as representatives or champions for their people. David stood as a champion against Goliath, Jesus against Satan. And remember what I said about champions who represent a people? If they win, we win. If they lose, it's over. And you think about David with Goliath, well, that's one thing. I mean, if he lost, well, there's another day. But if Jesus loses against Satan, we're all done. Both were sent by their father into the battle. Both were rejected by their brothers. Eliab did not believe in David, saw him as conceited, didn't understand him what God was doing. Jesus' brothers did not believe in Jesus early on in his ministry. In John chapter 7, they just kind of said, Jesus, we don't get you. Why, why are you doing this? If you want to, you know, call attention yourself, why don't you go down to Jerusalem? Both had to wait on God for their time. David had to wait on God's timing to become king. He would not rush it. He would not take it into his own hands and slay Saul. Jesus also waited on the time that God called when he was about 30 years of age to begin his ministry. And when his brother said, why don't you go up to Jerusalem? Jesus said in John 7, verse 6, he said, my time has not yet come. He did everything according to his father's will, not his own. Both men were shepherds. 
who laid down their life for the sheep. David would risk his life fighting lions and bears. Jesus would lay down his life on Calvary for our sins. David was a shepherd who became a king. Jesus was a king who became a shepherd. And both won a decisive battle. David with Goliath and Jesus over sin and death and Satan. And their victory is our victory too. I look at that and I'm amazed. I mean, here David is living a thousand years before Jesus. In the Psalms he will write what are some of the most amazing prophecies foretelling how Jesus is going to die. Death by crucifixion at a time when they didn't even have crucifixion. And yet here it is, so clear, so plain, it will speak of what Jesus will do as Messiah. How do you explain that? Except God is the author of Scripture. And God foretold all of these things, and he would use David in a mighty way. Isn't it amazing what God can do through a person whose heart is fully devoted to him? So what do we learn from this chapter of the story? Well, we learn that the Lord, again, doesn't look at outward appearances. He looks at the heart. And how is our heart today? Are we in tune with God? Are we walking in fellowship with Him? Do you feel that there's a song in your heart of praise or an attitude of gratitude and thanksgiving? Are you right with God? Or is there some sin that's hindering your fellowship that needs to be confessed? Or are you here today and you're not even sure you have that kind of relationship with God, but you'd sure like to? Open your heart to Him and invite Him to be your Savior and Lord. Secondly, we all need just one person in our life, a a Jonathan who will see us with great potential, who sees us as God sees us and sees what God wants us to be. Now I think of those of you that are Sunday school teachers who work with our children or work with our youth. Be a Jonathan. Be somebody who comes alongside of those youth and helps them to see what they can be in Christ who believes in them and encourages them and lifts them up when maybe the world is putting them down or other students maybe are giving them grief in their life and you come alongside and you are a friend and you love them and pray for them and believe in them. And watch them blossom and turn into that person that God knows that they can be. Maybe somebody did that for you and you just want to say thank you Lord right now to God for that person in your life. And thirdly, just as God tested David and Jesus, so he will test us. So he can develop our character and refine us and mold us and make us into the kind of person who can represent him in this world. God can use anyone whose heart is fully devoted to him. Is that your desire? Is that the kind of person you want to be? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for David's life. I am challenged by it. I'm challenged by his courage and his faith and his view of a great and mighty God. And Lord, I pray that all of us would say we want to be just like David in that way. We want to honor you and glorify you. We want to make your purposes our purposes in life. We want to live in a way that's pleasing to you. And Father, when we sin, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us and restore us And help us to walk with you in the power of your Holy Spirit. Mold us and make us into a person whom you can use. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.